Today in our special Religion Media Centre briefing, which is also our podcast of the week, we're looking at the details of the coronation service. So we're looking at the 1,000-year-old traditional elements that are still part of it, and also the new innovations that uh, have been published especially for the coronation of King Charles III. And we're joined by our, if I could say, regular royal pundit, Catherine Pepinster, journalist and author of Defenders of the Faith, the British Monarchy, Religion and the Coronation, the Reverend Professor Ian Bradley, Emeritus Professor of Cultural and Spiritual History at the University of St Andrews, and author of God Save the King, The Sacred Nature of the Monarchy, and Canon Professor Alison Milbank, Canon Theologian at Southern Minster. So many thanks to all of you for joining us again. We have been around this boy before, where we were looking at what might be in the service, but now it's published. Can I ask all of you, perhaps starting with you, Ian, what's the thing that leapt out at you, the most interesting, innovative, new thing in the service? I think the most exciting thing, and uh, Catherine has also, I think, written very interestingly about this, is this emphasis on servant kingship, which I find absolutely fascinating from the moment almost he arrives in the Abbey. Charles is making this very interesting declaration that he comes not to be served, but to serve. We then have, for the first time ever, a personal prayer by the monarch, which is all about um, his service and the gospel reading is is very much focused on Jesus as the servant king so i think the the real standout for me is this very clear emphasis and to me very welcome emphasis on on servant kingship we had a, a, a br- another briefing actually yesterday on this very theme, wondering if the idea of service was a bit outdated, but we'll come on to that perhaps later in the discussion. Um, Alison, perhaps next, going to you. What's your standout element of the coronation service? The way that this is played out is quite interesting. It emphasises even more the Christological elements of the monarchy, the prophet, priest and king, the kind of sacrificial, um, the 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 priestly, um, because, you know, Christ, the servant king, is the the imitation. Um, I like the the greeting by a child at the beginning, which is what the Anglican Church has started to do with bishops. So a bishop is challenged by a child as soon as he or she comes in. And that, for me, is quite important. The, the, The way that There is an emphasis on participation. So we all join in the homage if we wish. Um, We have the homage also and greeting by the different faiths. Um, And this encourages us all to see ourselves as in the epistle, as participating in in the king's service, if you like, that that Mm. we're all one in it. Thank you. And Catherine, are you going to agree with everyone? Is it service for you? I think the thing that strikes me above all about this is that actually the the new elements are so small and that it's actually much more of a traditional service than many of us were led to believe that, that it would be, that we've been told how keen they were to update it, um, and, and they've made efforts. I mean, in many ways, I think the most significant thing, apart from the theme of service, is is, is the, the congregation. That's really changed. But, you know, if, if, if Charles II popped in to this service, um, he would think, oh, goodness, look, 
he's wearing he's wearing the crown I had made. Uh, they're using the regalia and and all these elements, the key elements. They're all so familiar. And you know, if kings well before him and queens well before him came in, um, they would say the same. And the thing that sort of strikes me now is not only that that it is it is so old, but that there's something of a paradox right at the heart of it. So, so much time is spent with the oath taking in uh, advocating Protestantism. But none of the most fervent Protestant monarchs ever saw fit to change it so much that it's that it stopped being a Roman Catholic mass, which is in effect what it is. The interesting thing about the the Eucharistic um, shape of it, which of course you know we have the Eucharist too, is for me the fact that they brought in elements of 1928, so that it has a proper epiclesis, it has a proper calling down of the Holy Spirit on the elements, and then it has the prayer of everybody offering the sacrifice of praise. So it's both in keeping with modern liturgical theology of the Eucharist, but also going back to very ancient models. So in that sense, you can say it's Catholic if you think of this as setting it in the context. But of course, it always has been, even when we were at our most Protestant, it's always had that shape. And it's always had this special offering prayer of the monarch, which I find particularly interesting during our more Protestant periods, where the the monarch offers the bread and the wine. Um, And this is both modern, post-Vatican II, post-Parish and people, Anglican liturgical theology of the fact that we all offer the Eucharist, but is a very Catholic understanding with a small c. Absolutely agreeing with Catherine about the very Protestant nature. I mean, I take absolutely your points, Alison, about the Eucharist, and wonderful to see a proper epiclesis, which I'm I'm a great man for. But um, I absolutely agree with Catherine. This is in many ways far more Protestant than, than the late Queen Elizabeth's coronation, where she didn't have to make the accession declaration oath, I am a faithful Protestant because, of course, it can either be taken by the monarch at the coronation or at the first state opening of parliament. And Elizabeth made it at the state opening of parliament. So the effect of this, with with Charles having to take both the third coronation oath to to swear to maintain the Protestant reformed religion and then take the accession uh, oath as well, that he's a faithful Protestant, really hugely reinforces this I think, slightly anachronistic role for the monarch as protector of Protestantism. Now, we have a a statement that the archbishop is going to make before the coronation oaths, which says that the Church of England is is committed to, uh, you know, protecting all all faiths. But that doesn't quite cut the mustard for me. I mean, uh, we we come back to something I think we talked about before, which is that many of us, not least the, the Constitution Unit of the University College London, came up with a lot of, I think, very good alternatives to the third coronation oath, which would have the monarch um, swearing to maintain religious freedom, to protect all faiths and none. And I I think we really have missed uh, something very significant here. And I'm absolutely with you, Catherine. It's it's the most, I mean, it's to me quite extraordinary that we have both those statements of rather exclusive Protestantism, one after the other, in in the context of the coronation. And, And as 
slightly weak statement. I mean, one of the interesting things about the liturgy, which is a change, is that much more is spelt out than ever before. You know, there are a lot of little explanatory paragraphs that the Archbishop particularly has. Less is left to the imagination, which is perhaps inevitable nowadays, but everything is, 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 is you know, sort of spelt out more. And I find it strange still that they didn't change, and it's, it's entirely a matter for the government, this. I don't think it's reflecting either Lambeth Palace or Buckingham Palace. It's, it's the government that should be changing the coronation oaths, and I find it very strange they didn't change that third oath. I just have to be grateful that back in 1910 they changed the... <laughs> yeah accession declaration that Charles is going to give and got rid of the denunciation of transubstantiation yeah. of Virgin mm -hmm. Mary. Mm. But does anyone know why uh, that new uh, wording of the oath that you were mentioning, Ian, why it wasn't adopted? You, you say it was probably because of the government, of the government intervention uh, rather than anything from Buckingham Palace or the Church of England. Well, does anyone know what happened? I mean, as far as I'm, my, my sources suggest, it was really pure inertia um, on the part of the government. It would have required an act of parliament. There was, there was an awful lot of legislation going through Rishi and others have perhaps more on their mind at, at the moment. And and my steer from those who know more about it from me is that that, that it wasn't a kind of conscious uh pro-Protestant agenda. Uh it was it was um uh just just sheer inertia. But I, I still find it puzzling. I don't know whether Alison's got or if it is the government, it may have something to do with their relation with Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland parties, mm. which mm. seemed to me I wouldn't have thought this was coming from the Church of England. No, I don't think it is. I, I don't think it's coming from either the Church of England and certainly not from the palace. As I understand it from talking to people who are much more uh, knowledgeable about constitutional matters, that although there had been meetings over the years behind the scenes quietly going on between Lambeth and Buckingham Palace about the next coronation, there was a, a, a certain sensitivity about doing such things. It was viewed as kind of very bad taste to be explicit about the next coronation when, while the Queen was alive. And so, although that kind of dialogue went on, um, if there was anything that was more legislative that might have involved legislation might have involved the government it was kind of put to one side and then by the time the queen died i think it was felt that that the the time between then and when the coronation was like six months or so later it wasn't quite enough time to 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 get anything done so it's basically been put in the pending tray yet again i mean the other surprising thing to me, which in a sense is also very Protestant, is the nature of the epistle. I don't know if, if, if this strikes anyone else, but yes. the language, we've never had this epistle in a coronation. And it it talks about the the, the blood of Christ. Hang on, I've got the reference. Yes, it, it's, it's um, to me, embodying a very, very conservative evangelical Protestant theology. It, it talks about yes. God delivering us from the powers of darkness and Christ giving us redemption through his blood, which I've just been writing a piece about. They're saying this is the language of the gospel hall. It's much more challenging theologically than, than most readings which we have in state occasions. And I, I mean, Catholics will probably be able to affirm it. Catherine will 
you can give us a steer on this, but I find it's a very tough ask, I think, for a practicing Hindu. This is the lesson that Rishi Sunak will read. I think it's a very tough ask to, to uh, have a practicing Hindu talk about the, uh, the powers of darkness and, and redemption through the blood of Christ. Uh, it's very, very strong. I mean, I've spoken to a few Catholics and a lot of them have kind of raised their eyebrows at, at this choice. They agree with you, Ian, it's the kind of language, etc. As I understand it, the readings are chosen by the Archbishop of Canterbury. But presumably, if Charles said, there's no way I'm, read, uh, I'm having that read at my coronation, they'd have thought again. But they, they are the choice of the Archbishop. And the Archbishop has chosen to give a sermon at this coronation. Yeah. Now, when they put out the order of service, um, they 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 had some annotations with it that said it's it's rare for there not to be a sermon at the coronation. But in fact, we haven't had one for a hundred years or so. That's right. No, exactly. We haven't. No. And Justin Welby is, I think, much more of an evangelical bent himself, and and perhaps he's seeing this coronation as a moment of mission and feels that it's a moment for teaching. And so uh, he will you know, expound upon his, his thinking, not just about the coronation, but about Christianity and kingship. And, um, and he will expound on this, why you know, this epistle matters so much. Just all to say the epistle is Colossians 1, 9 to 17, for those who uh, want, want to look it up. It's quite interesting what you said there, that you thought it was a mission opportunity. Do you think the whole framing of the service um, as being uh, something about the, the idea of being a servant um, and the whole coronation weekend as embodying volunteering and being a good neighbour, did that come from Welby, do you think, or did it come from King Charles? I think it's a combination. I mean, as I understand it, the king has been very much across this. He's been very concerned about what his coronation will consist of. Um, given what he has said over the years about his role, uh, what he said in in his speeches about his his view of himself and others service resonates with him. Remember, he's the longest serving Prince of Wales ever. And the motto of the Prince of Wales is always, Ich dien, I serve. So, you know, this this means something to him. Mm. Um, but I think, I, think, I think you can see Justin Welby's thinking coming through here, that this might be a moment, as I say, for mission for teaching. Now, we heard the other day, in an RMC briefing, some people saying that the idea of service is not going to go down that well. I think it's going to go down exceptionally well with those who are Christians of different denominations, as well as Anglicans. It's going to really resonate with them. And from also what's been said, I think service will mean something to those who belong to other faiths. But there seems to be a question mark over how much it will mean something to people who aren't believers now many of those are involved in service but but i just i just you know i was surprised that we were being told the extent to which that this wouldn't work yes i i was surprised by that and how it would resonate with a, a society where non-religion is on the increase and 
Um, but the, the, the coronation service does make uh, brave attempts to bring in people of other faith as well, with also uh, strong traditions of service or savour in the in the Sikh tradition, for example. Um, and just to, to talk to you a little bit about that and the involvement of the people of other faiths. Um, now we've got the service and we see who they are and what, what they're going to be doing. Um, we have talked with each other before about uh, the regalia that's going to be brought in by uh, a Jewish peer, a Hindu crossbench peer, Lord Indrajit Singh, who's a Sikh, and Lord Syed uh, Kamala, a Muslim conservative peer. So they're bringing the regalia in. And then at the end of the service, we have uh, uh, another group of um, faith representatives who are going to give the greetings. So different again, the most venerable Bagoda, Sila Wimala, Buddhist, Lord Singh again, rather Mohan Das from the Hindu temple in Hertfordshire, um, Alia Azam, uh, who's a, a, a Muslim, um, and the chief rabbi, Sir Ephraim Mervis. And just to get your take on all of this, what was said at our, another of our briefings the other day was, how representative are these faith leaders of the other faiths? I mean, they, they come from particular groups. They're known by particular people within their faith traditions. But does it matter, because for one of the, the guests we had on the other briefing said it really did matter that they weren't representative of the faith, apart from the chief rabbi. Is that something that's crossed your mind or registered with you, Ian, in any way? Um, I don't think particularly. I mean, there have been press stories suggesting there's some debate about who the Muslim representative should be and how representative they are. I mean, I think it's, it's obviously easy with a post like the chief rabbi or Archbishop of Canterbury, you've got a clear leader. You don't in, in Islam or Sikhism or Hinduism. So uh, to me, they're quite representative. And I think that's extremely well done. I mean, going back to Catherine's point, which I would agree with, that much of it is highly traditional, and Charles II would, would recognise it, you've still got all the regalia, which I think a lot of us had thought we weren't going to have, you know, down to the uh, the bracelets, the arm mills and the glove. And they're all, many of them being presented by other faith leaders. What interests me about that sort of act of um, homage right at the end is whether it's actually going to happen inside the abbey or outside it. And I haven't been able to get a, a steer on that from anyone. It, it, it's going to be, it, it comes at the end of the procession. And I think it's it's rather critical in some senses as to whether it's within Westminster Abbey or, or outside it. But I I, I I think they are seen as, as quite representative. I, I don't get any a strong sense from people I've talked to in, in minority faiths um, that, that they feel they're unrepresentative. And, and there's, of course, other peers involved. I mean, I was very struck, and indeed I, I quoted it to the um, CEO of, of Republic, the, the atheist CEO who I was put up against on Beyond Belief the other day, that, you know, Floella Benjamin, Baroness Benjamin, saying who's going to be carrying uh, the, the glove, or one of the pieces of regalia up through the procession, saying, you know, there she is born in Trinidad, and I don't know what her faith position is um, at all. She may well be a humanist, but she says that everything that that regalia stands for, spirituality, equity, mercy, justice, is absolutely her values. So I think we've, we've and that's another point that Justin Welby has made, to, to give him credit, I think, about these are universal values. I mean, I, I was getting a lot of flack when I've been put up against um, Republicans and atheists about the fact that there is no representation of humanists or atheists in, in this service. Now, it would seem to me slightly bizarre to have atheists taking part in a, a religious service, but, but humanists perhaps. But 
a lot of the point, I think, and I think it's been been well made in the uh, by by Justin Welby and others. A, a lot of the the values that the regalia represent, and indeed the value of, of servanthood that that you've talked eloquently about, Catherine and, and and Alison as well. Although it's predicated on the servanthood of Christ, which we would all acknowledge as as the foundation of it. The, the idea of service and servanthood is, is a universal value. So I think we've got this wonderful articulation in the coronation of, yes, faith values, but also universal values. Because a lot of people are saying, you know, the, the majority of the population, possibly it depends what sort of polls you go on, are not people of faith. I would dispute that. But, you know, they are, there's a secular majority. But I think there's a lot they can latch onto here in terms of, of these universal values of, of justice, equity, peace that are represented by... It was the dove. Sorry, it's uh, Floella Benjamin is, is carrying up the scepter with the dove on it. And she spoke very movingly, probably many of you saw this, very movingly about what this means to her um, in terms of the values that it represents. So to me, it's very inclusive. It's very broad. It's about fundamental values, which, which you know, we are about in, in this country. I think they've made concerted effort to involve representatives of other faiths to a very limited degree, but they've made the effort. But, but it's clearly been a very delicate thing. Um, mm -hmm. Which is why you know the, they aren't saying prayers. Also, it's it's not just oh look we've got a faith leader oh well you you carry this then. They've thought about it to the degree that the the representatives of other faiths, the peers who will be involved in that regalia procession, will not carry anything that has a Christian symbol on it. So they won't be carrying anything with a cross representing Christ. And his dominion, or um, one of the scepters with with a dove on it representing the Holy Spirit. And then Ian was talking about the procession, uh, the greeting at the end, and this procession. And um, Lambeth Palace were very particular after they'd issued the order of service. They then sent out a further annotated note, which pointed out that the greeting of the faith leaders rather than the peers, the greeting by the faith leaders will not be part of the religious service, mm. that, that it will be after that, will be part of the ceremonial, as they put it. But oh. just looking again at the um, the information they put out, Ian's right, it's not clear no. where that's going to be. It talks about the king's outward procession. Oh. Well, given where that that comes that the outward procession i presume there means that that's when the king processes back down the nave to the great west door mm. and then it says at the end of the procession the king receives a greeting by leaders and representatives by faith communities and then after what they're going to say in unison it says the king acknowledges the greeting turns to the governor's general presumably of places like canada and it says the king acknowledges their greeting and proceeds to the gold state coach. But it's not clear if if that greeting, if it's at the end of the procession, if they're still inside the abbey or they've stepped outside it. 
Catherine, do you, do you have anything to, to add at this point about the ecumenical uh, inclusion in the in the service? Um, Cardinal Nichols, uh, the free church, the moderator of the free churches, the Greek Orthodox Archbishop of Thyatira and Great Britain, uh, they're all going to be saying prayers of blessing. Yeah. Um, this is hugely significant, isn't it, for Roman Catholic? It's hugely significant for other Christian denominations as well. Last time round in 53, the only thing that anybody did, he wasn't a member of the Church of England, was um, when the moderator of the Church of Scotland passed the Queen the Bible on which he would swear the oath. And they've, they've said to that moderator's current counterpart, you could do that as well. Um, and then there are fourth faith leaders, including Cardinal Nichols, who will give these greetings. I mean... It's a bit token. I mean, between them, they say 90 words out of thousands upon thousands in this. Service. Yeah, they're, not, they're, not that, they're not that involved. What I, no, what but I the fact is, that he, he says it at all, wasn't it the first time since the Reformation? Yes, it is, in that sense. But I think it's still very token. What I think in many ways is more, more astonishing is that the Pope has got involved mm. by, by providing relics of the so-called true cross. Um, so the Nuncio is coming as well, isn't he? Just the that's coming, yes. So the Pope yeah. will have a representative. I don't think the Pope Nuncio went before. Um, but the Pope has given the king a gift. This was, over the years, have been diplomatic gifts to the Queen and the then Prince of Wales, you know, as head of state and her representative. But... Um, a gift by a pope for a coronation that can't have happened for 500 odd years um I, I, I do find that remarkable and i i i i'm welcome it but i also find it perplexing i don't i don't i don't and i think we had a bit of discussion about this previously at one of these briefings how they quite they quite square that with thinking on um Relics, which is part of the Protestantism, which Charles is going to promise to maintain and uphold and be faithful to. I think I said last time that, that um, although relics was one of the key issues in the Reformation, though, as we said, particularly to do with indulgences, um, Catholics have been very generous. So that Litchfield has been given a bit of St. Chad, I think, by a monastery in France. Um, and of course, Westminster Abbey is itself a reliquary because it holds the tomb of Edward the Confessor and his cult is still acknowledged every October. And Anglicans and other people come from all over London. So the Church of England is a funny institution. Yeah, but um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a bit different having relics given by the Pope at a mm. coronation. And, <laughs> and so there are many Anglicans who like that. I know that there are others who think it's appalling. I very much take your point there, Catherine, because it, it just comes back to this thing I'm puzzled about, which is this this real banging away at the monarch's role as protector of Protestantism. And, and I mean, it's interesting what you were saying about the fact that it was because they didn't like to raise this in the life of the late Queen. I, I find this very hard. I mean, I was at the periphery of discussions about the shape of the next coronation about 20 years ago and we were we were grappling with these things and it, it's still very odd to me that when so many of us had provided all sorts of alternative forms of, of uh, wording they they couldn't actually come up with it and i don't think it's any particularly pro-protestant agenda i think i think it's pure force of 
inertia. Um, but the, the the other thing, I mean, going back to the, as you say, it's going to be very interesting to see whether that, that final act by the other faiths is um, outside or inside the Abbey. One, one thing we haven't talked about, I mean, you mentioned it at the beginning, Alison, and I'd be interested in others' views about it, is the sort of act of homage that we're all going to be asked to take part in at the end, which, which you did talk about, Alison, quite positively. I have to say that I'm very sceptical about this. It's it's gone down like a, a lead balloon in Scotland, as you probably know. And I mean, I slightly sympathise with those who say that this has slightly reeks of, you know, the American business of doing allegiance to the flag of, of a kind of uh, dirigiste Stalinist state. I mean, I know it's it's just an invitation, but I'm, I'm very uneasy about it. And I think the trouble is it's been done in a slightly cack-handed way. I, I, I don't know what you feel, Catherine. I was quite amused by it, really, that they, they wanted to be to modernise. So they wanted to get rid of the homage of the peers and replace it with homage of the people. And the homage of the people has turned out to be extremely old-fashioned. I'm really mystified they thought this that this this swearing of allegiance was a good idea. And I think the people involved in making a decision about this must only talk among themselves rather than talk to many people beyond the, you know, the kind of hallowed halls of Buckingham Palace, Lambeth Palace, number 10, the Cabinet Office. I mean, unless you're a member of, say, the armed forces, because they swear allegiance to the monarch, but... Most people, as Ian was saying, think of this as something that's rather American. And why can't we just sing God Save the King and have done with it? And I think there's a tension, isn't there, that our country, for whatever reason, has always been very weird about forms of national expression that mm. other countries take for granted. I mean, in a sense, it's drawing away from this individualist idea of what it is to be a person. The whole point of this is that there. They're calling people back to an idea of solidarity, to an idea that we are a community of some sort or a community of communities, and we will see whether it works. But I, I have more faith in it among ordinary people. In times gone by, there was, there was more uh, emphasis on the crown, um, and now there's more emphasis on the person yeah. rather than the crown. And the crown has its place, you know, it's, it's in many ways, it's almost like representing the people, um, people and the state, really. I think as the royal family's kind of been dragged towards celebrity by some forces, there's this, there's a sort of an, an, a particular emphasis on individuals. Um, rather than on the institution. And perhaps if it was a question of people swearing allegiance to the institution, as they saw it, rather than an individual, they'd feel more comfortable with it. One thing we haven't discussed is the music. Um, and uh, there's going to be a, a coronation orchestra. There's going to be a gospel choir, the Ascension Choir, um, new pieces of music by Debbie Wiseman, a TV and film composer, by Andrew Lloyd Webber, 
make a joyful noise, putting music uh, together to Psalm 98, plus the usual pomp and circumstance for Edward Elgar, I was glad Sir Hubert Perry. Uh, there's music in between all of these words that we've spent the last half an hour discussing. How powerful an event do you think it will be with everything put together? The, the visual uh, regalia, the music and the, and the words, how powerful impacts do you think it will have? I think very powerful. I mean, one point about this, and I don't know if others feel this as well, when I look at the liturgy, particularly the music, because you haven't mentioned, I mean, Paul Miller's being commissioned, uh, there's this Greek Orthodox chant, there's about 13 new pieces of music. I get the strong impression it's actually going to be longer than the last coronation because all we've lost is the homage and the communion service has been cut down a bit. But of course, we've got the anointing and crowning of the Queen, which we didn't have in 1953 with Prince Philip. And the music is, is going to make it, I think, incredibly long. But that's a separate point. I think it's going to be very exciting, the music, as, as you say, all specially commissioned. I mean, two standouts are obviously the Welsh Kyrie, which is very interesting, and also the fact that um, the um, Veni Creator Spiritus come Holy Ghost, our spells inspire, is going to be sung one verse in English, one in Gaelic, one in Irish, Gaelic, and one in Welsh. So again, you've got a real attempt to bring in the four nations here. Um, I think it's, it's going to be very exciting. I'm particularly looking forward to the Lloyd Webber Anthem, because I love his stuff, and I've just actually suggested to the Times he should be approached to write the new national anthem, because uh, I think he'd get, get him back with Tim Rice and we might get a decent national anthem. So I think the music's going to be wonderful, yes, but but gosh, I think it's going to go on and on forever. I can't see it being much shorter than the Queen's coronation. An eternal coronation service. Um, Catherine, um, an impact on the nation? Yeah, I think, I think the music's going to be key to whether it it, it resonates with a lot of people. The, the I find the, the the new music really interesting, not least because um, uh, one of the composers, Roxana Panufnik, is somebody I've commissioned to write music before, so I'm thrilled she's there. Um, and then, it, I mean, it, the thing we forget about some of the some of the um, of the other pieces of music that we'll hear is that that. You know, that, that we're familiar with is that they were written for previous coronations as well. Parry's I Was Glad, Handel's They Dot the Priest. And I, I'm not sure if they're playing, they're going to play Crown Imperial by William Moulton. I'm not sure if it's there. But, um, you know, but the, a lot of these if, if pieces of music that have been composed for coronations become standards. So it'll be interesting to see if some of these last the course. But I think this is going to add to the the spectacular aspects of it. And of course, not only the compositions, but the quality of those performing as well. You know, we've got the the uh, director of the Royal Op Opera House Orchestra, Antonio Papiano, will be direct, uh, directing and conducting. We've got um, Westminster Abbey Choir, as always, with the, uh, the Chapel Royal. And then we're going to have girls' voices. That's an innovation. Yeah. Uh, some some choristers, uh, girl choristers. I think from Truro Cathedral and also from the Methodist College in 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 Belfast. So, um, yeah, it's going to be quite something. It's going to be a lot of noise. Well, I'm glad we've got some hymns so that everybody can sing. And of course, one of them has music by Purcell, 
um, Christ has made the sure foundation, which is a wonderful hymn um, and often sung at weddings as well. Um, and Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, which is based on a song and is very inclusive. Um, so I'm glad that the, the congregation get a chance to sing as well. Just very quickly, Catherine said something which I think is very important, which is it a lot depends on how the media present it. And, and this is something I'm very conscious of, that I think it is there's a huge responsibility um, on the broadcasters because they can either play up the, the sacred spiritual aspects, as dear old Richard Dimbleby would have done, or they can just turn it into a kind of celebrity show and, and I think there's a huge responsibility on, on the media, actually, particularly the broadcasters, as, as to how they, and I think that's going to affect very much how we as viewers see it. You know, are, is, it, is it really going to be all about where Harry's sitting and who he's talking to, or are they actually going to let us really appreciate the, the spiritual sacred nature? But I'll be, I'll be sitting there trying to appreciate the spiritual sacred nature with that wonderful... Um, canopy around the anointing, which we haven't talked about, which I think is incredibly significant, that beautifully woven tapestry, which will surround the king, which, I mean, you wrote about it very movingly in, in Credo in the Times, I think, um, Catherine, but I, I sent a letter saying, not just reserve, but also the mystery, it to me speaks of, of mystery, and it's an icon. And, and I think if we're allowed to linger, and we don't have some commentator talking all the time, we will actually have, have a very profound sacred moment then. Thank you. Thank yes. you all very much uh, for taking part. I think we've probably got to the end of the of the time. And um, I hope you enjoy watching. Thank you for listening to the Religion Media Centre podcast. To find out more about us and what we offer, visit our website at religionmediacentre.org.uk. In the meantime, we look forward to welcoming you to our future podcast episodes.